Hey, welcome to Life 2.0 Podcast. I'm John St. Augustine. Time to go up the down staircase in the outdoor. Try to make sense out of the senseless. If at all possible, find the obvious, bearded in the absurd. Hold on to your friggin' lug nuts. It's time for an overall. just enough coffee in me to get the open just right. Didn't have to redo it two or three times. You know, when I do this podcast, as professional as I can be sometimes, not every time goes very smoothly. You know, I'm chopping and dicing and slicing and putting stuff together, pulling it apart to get it to where I want it to be. But that open, nailed it. Glad to have you joining me from anywhere and everywhere around planet Earth. First and foremost, let me get this shit right out of the gate. The shit show I did last week had so much response, I had people sending me shitty messages all week. Now, for those of you, there's only like four, who were not real happy with me saying shit so much, I will try to minimize it today, but I have to follow up on last week's shit show. Um, the first one I got said, that show was the shits. I knew what they meant. They meant it was good. And then I started getting suggestions from things I missed, like, uh, shit from Shinola. You don't know shit from Shinola. Now, you have to be of a certain vintage to know that Shinola at one time, I don't know that it even exists anymore, was shoe polish. Dark brown, dark black shoe polish, get my drift. So if you didn't know shit from Shinola, that means you're like an ignorant person. One of the other ones that I missed was uh, shit hits the fan, which is one of my favorite sayings of all time. Because it's better to be behind the fan when the shit hits the fan instead of front of the fan when the shit hits the fan. Because you know there's a difference. So if the shit hits the fan, stuff's going everywhere. Could be at work, could be at home, doesn't matter. Shit's going to hit the fan at some point. And my probably all-time favorite that I missed is the shit list. And so apparently last week was the shit list, but I forgot to say, don't get on my shit list. Because if somebody says that to you, you already know what's going on. A, you don't know shit from Shinola. B, shit's hitting the fan. And C, don't get on the shit list. And of course, you know what the shit list leads to. The all-time, at least in my estimation, favorite use of the word shit, which is up shit creek. If you don't know what that means, I can't help you. Because the last place you ever want to be is up shit creek without a paddle. <laughs> there is actually, it was HBO or Netflix or somebody has or had uh, it's probably in reruns now. I think they've done production. But uh, there was a show called Shits Creek, S-C-H-I-T-T-S, with Eugene Levy, which was pretty funny stuff. Pretty good shit. Up Shit Creek. And that's all I'm going to say about that shit. On to other things. But thanks so much for the response. I appreciate it. It's amazing to me when somebody in a foreign country from, you know, where I'm living, another part of the world sends me a note about the word shit. <laughs> it's just great. So this week, I got just a kind of a, a fodder file for you um, in our business. At least the, the reference that I use is fodder, and that means fill. And when I was on WGN in Chicago for a couple, three years, that's how we say it in Chicago. Could have been a couple, could have been tree. I don't know, somewhere in the middle there, a couple, three years. Fodder became the way of things. Um, doing Oprah radio was very uh, pointed, meaning that we'd have specific shows about very specific themes. So, for example, if we're doing the Dr. Oz show, it's not about auto mechanics, it's about heart mechanics. And Gene Chatsky, my great friend who for years was the money maven on the Today Show, it was all about the money. And if uh, Bob Green was on, we're doing his show, it's all about health. So those are very pointed themes and very focused. 
WGN Radio, of course, covers the world, at least it used to, and I'm pretty sure they still do. And uh, you need to have a lot of fodder to fill three hours. And that's just the way it had to go. You know, the, the big secret in Chicago radio is you want to get the phones ringing, uh, ask people who's a better team, the Cubs or the Sox, or should you put ketchup on your hot dog? Phones will light up. The master at this, and I think unintentionally, uh, if I were to ask him, he'd be honest about it, was Gary Meyer, who uh, many of you knew from Steve Dahl and Gary Meyer, the Steve and Gary show. Gary and I worked uh, for a couple, three years together at WGN. I usually was on noon to three. Gary came on three to seven doing what we called drive time. You got morning drive and afternoon drive. Both of those are the sweet spots because people are in their cars. They're locked into the radio. At least that's how it was back then. To to the point being that so much has changed. Podcasting has changed that landscape. Uh, XM radio has changed that landscape. So the AM radio, to a a greater degree than probably FM radio, has more of a shrinking audience. Uh, People that are listening to AM radio tend to be older, like me. And, uh, and I remember when FM came in, I thought that was like, God just spoke to me. Well, FM, what is this sound I'm hearing? But we would have a, have a lot of fodder and fill to, to, to fill out three or four hours. Gary would get on and all he had to say was, how's the traffic out there on the Eisenhower? And the f- I don't even know what happened. The, the lines would light up. This guy could say one thing or ask a simple question and people would run with it for like an hour or two. Add that to the fact that Tom Skilling, who is arguably the most famous meteorologist in the United States, and we're going to get to meteorology here in just a minute. Didn't know you're going that direction today? Well, we are. Uh, Tommy would get on with Gary at, I think, 4.05 and 5.05, and he would just talk about the weather. Well, that's not exactly how it went every single time. Because people knew Tom was going to be on, they would call in ahead of time and sit on hold waiting to ask Tom what the weather would be like in French Lick, Indiana on the weekend because they had a trip planned. And Tom would get on and, you know, he would, of course, do his thing. So whenever I get a chance to, uh, to spend time with Skilling, it's a, it's a lot of fun. He has been a huge supporter of the work that so many of us do on behalf of our high school, Shures in Chicago. Uh, we do a thing called Lunch with a Legend. And people bid on going to lunch with the likes of Jared Payton or Jennifer Weigel uh, and Tom Skilling, and, among others. And um, so he's been great at that. So when I watch him on the news here, not as often as I used to, but catching him late uh, here and there doing the weather thing, he's all about education and getting people involved more. But he's, he's this like unintended, I think, pop star and rock star when it comes to the weather. So uh, that was always a lot of fun. So the, today's show was kind of built around those lines. I got a bunch of stuff laying here, thoughts in my head, a couple ideas that popped up over here, and I'm going to try to minimize this shit as best that I can. The first and foremost thing was, let me just, let me just follow up on, because skilling I just mentioned. Uh, I came across this article about this meteorologist in Iowa, which you would think you say, Iowa, oh, it's just kind of a nice place with a bunch of cows and, you know, corn and stuff like that. But in Des Moines, harassment started to intensify on TV meteorologist Chris Gloninger as he did more reporting on climate change during local newscasts. Outraged emails and even a threat to show up at this guy's house. The the weather guy who's talking about climate change and connecting it to weather trends, um, getting harassment and threats. He had been recruited in part to, quote, shake things up at the Iowa station where he worked. But backlash was building. The man who sent him a series of threatening emails was charged with third-degree harassment. 
The Des Moines station asked him to dial it back a little bit, facing what he called an understandable pressure to maintain ratings. So that's a little bit of an inside piece of, of this business I've been a part of for 30 years. I'll never forget, going back to WGN, uh, every time I get on the air, if I would say like 20, 2013, uh, a guy would call, he would wait for me to say the, that word or the year, 2013. And he would call and complain to WGN I wasn't saying it 2013. This is what his, his so this is obviously someone has got way too shitty much time on his hands. And so when you're in the business, like this fella is, like Skilling is, like I am, Gary's still doing a podcast. You know, you're putting yourself out in the world and you never know who's listening and what kind of response they're going to have. So as this guy went along to start connecting the dots between extreme weather and climate change, the pushback started to increase. And that comes out of our, our recent political history where, where if you don't agree with something, somehow you get to threat, threaten somebody who's delivering the mail. It's like it'd be threatening the postal worker because you don't like the mail they're delivering. Just throw it out. You don't have to read it. So many meteorologists say it's a reflection of a more hostile political landscape that has also affected workers in a variety of jobs that used to be nonpartisan, like librarians are getting threats, school board officials getting threats, and election workers. We've seen this. So we're in a day and age, I guess, when because of social media or unsocial media, everything is readily available. But to sit and turn on the television set in Des Moines, Iowa, and not like what the meteorologist said, I mean, you got to be drinking your own urine at some point here, I would think. And th to send death threats to someone who is reporting weather events. But this sort of landscape, especially when it has to do with this connectivity we all have, which can be used for bad or good like everything else, um, has emboldened people to do this. Now, the guy that used to call WGN, he wasn't threatening me personally. He just didn't like that I said 2013. It should be 2013. You tell him to say that. I never said that. So because he asked me to say it, especially I wasn't going to say it, but it also reminds me of a guy who for a whole year, and I'm sure I mentioned on this show before, uh, he didn't like anything I was saying. Every Friday when I'd get off the air, he would send me a litany of biblical phrases and quotes and scripture saying that I was basically leading people across the burning lake to hell. And in the beginning, I just kind of ignored it. Then I played along with it and responded. And I think, well, I appreciate the education, but I didn't know there was a burning lake. So thank you so much. And then I stopped, you know, responding at all. Because once you engage, that's the end of it. So I had to, I had to do that. And this was a small market. I didn't know who the guy was. I didn't know where he lived. And it wasn't hard to find me. And after a year of this, uh, as I was getting ready to go off the air and take a hiatus, uh, I'll never forget it. There's a knock on my door after I do the three to six show uh, in in. Michigan, and the bustling metropolis of Escanaba. I think I was on the Radio Results Network at the time. And um, there's a knock on my office door, and everybody else was gone from the building. It was like New Year's Eve uh, in probably 2002. And uh, let open the door, and there's this guy standing there, and he's, he's, are you John? I'm like, yeah. Can I talk to you? And I'm thinking, there's nobody in the building. Now, this guy, if he's carrying something, I'm going to have to you know, I really was thinking that way. And uh, so he comes in and he, he says, I'm the guy that's been sending you these emails. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, where's my paperweight in case I got to clock this guy? And I said, oh, is that right? And, you know, and again, I'm just kind of playing it back a little bit. And he said, yeah, I, I kind of came here to apologize. Hmm. Okay. Continue. 
And so he went on to tell me that, you know, because he disagreed with what I said, his knee-jerk response basically made him a jerk. He was brought up a certain way with a certain faith and and certain Christian beliefs that I didn't think were very Christian-like, but this is all he knew. He, he had not educated himself any further than somebody telling him his whole life, this is how it is. And what was happening is I was talking about things that were in direct conflict with his belief system. So he was firing back at me with the ammunition that he had on hand, his belief system, basically. And that's fine, but you don't have to, you know, I don't have to engage in that. So if that's what you believe, that's great. You don't have to listen to a word I say. Doesn't matter to me. What matters to me is I say what I need to say. Whether people agree with it or not, I can't, you know, control that shit. So we had an interesting conversation. He went on to talk about how he was really starting to, you know, expand his boundaries and things. And of course, I didn't know who the guy was. And, you know, and the other side of this, there are people, the majority of people that would, you know, listen to me, they understand, you know, they just took it as it is and they moved on with their day. For some reason, it's stuck in this guy's crawl. And so when I think about this meteorologist in Des Moines leaving his job now, going back to Boston, actually getting out of the broadcast industry, because there's just people out there that, you know, they don't get it. And they're not ever going to get it. And not supposed to get it. So for me, you don't have to listen, even though I appreciate you do. Every now and again, somebody will pop something up here and send me a note about, you know, I'm, I'm this, I'm this, I'm this. Don't listen. I don't care. I just find that fascinating. But this is what this unsocial media connectivity thing has done. It gives you access in places that you never had access before. And it emboldens people until you get caught. It's like Mike Tyson said, everybody's got a plan and an idea until they get punched in the mouth. And so by the, over time, this guy had to question his beliefs. At least he made that attempt to question his beliefs, and he started coming up with different conclusions. Well, the interesting part was I was going off the air for a hiatus. I had donated a kidney to my daughter just a few months earlier. I was flat out energy-wise. I had to put a national, at least a, a Western uh, syndication deal on hold for a little bit. And um, I said, well, I'm glad to hear all this, but I'm taking some time off. And he's like, well, you can't leave now. I'm just starting to understand things. I'm like, not my job, pal. So I never heard from the guy again, but those are the type of things in this business that you, you find really interesting, at least I do. And so um, in, in, in uh, support of this meteorologist guy, who I've never met, and my pal Tom Skilling, who I have met, and we've had a lot of uh, dinners and things like that together and conversations, he's all about climate change. He's like, you know, when you're a scientifically based person, you can't not see the connection. It's just like smoking to me for decades smoking doesn't cause cancer and eventually everybody knew it did and even people who got cancer wouldn't admit they got cancer from smoking well when it all came out and you find out the whole campaign that was started to you know offset the the deadly effects of smoking the the denial machine is always ramped up about things to keep things in place and if you're not a, a an educated person or not willing to educate yourself above your, your where you're at now can't help you so, as I mentioned, in support of this guy and in support of Tom Skilling, here's an Earth Matters with Bill Curtis. The late singer and environmentalist John Denver wrote, The prophets are laughing. They say we told you so. It's one thing to play guessing games, another to know. A recent study by a sociologist at Michigan State clearly concluded that U.S. residents support government action to curb emissions when it comes to global warming by both Republican and Democrat alike. However, the study also showed that media denial machines 
An organized movement to undercut the scientific reality of climate change during the past two decades has been highly effective. With a majority of scientists agreeing that humans contribute to global warming, perhaps the last few lines John Denver wrote on the subject are even more profound. For the needs of many are sins of a few, and the day is forthcoming when accounting is due. I'm Bill Curtis, and Earth Matters. Bill and I produced 300 of those Earth Matters episodes. They ran in syndication for a couple, three years, and um, they stand the test of time. Uh, most of those are called evergreen, no pun intended, when it comes to environmental things, and they can be played over and over again, and the, the message is still the same. It still holds up. There's just a few of those that were time-sensitive. But that one in particular was interesting because I just pull it out of a pile. I don't remember what they all say, of course. There's 300 of them. Uh, but that mention of uh, our friend John Denver leads me kind of to the next thing here, which is a little bit different direction and, and something that kind of caught me a little bit off guard. Um, 12 of Colorado's uh, most prolific authors are going to be inducted in the Authors Hall of Fame coming up in uh, September at the uh, Hilton, the Doubletree Hilton Denver Tech Center. And the first on the list, I've never read any of these folks, just to be clear, uh, Jeannie Abrams, Temple Grandin, William Hamilton, Peter Heller, Mary Kelly, Patricia Limerick, uh, Tom Noel, Kathy O'Neill Gear, Linda Womack, and Philip Yancey. I'm sure all very um, well-respected authors. But the top of the list is John Denver. And I kind of wondered about that. Why is JD on a author's list? certainly for the, the Hall of Fame. Now, he was inducted to the Colorado Music Hall of Fame, rightfully so, back in mm, 2010, somewhere near 11, 12, something like that. Uh, it, was a, it was a grand event, and it was fantastic, and uh, all went well. But I saw this post about this uh, Authors Hall of Fame, and he's be in there as a legacy recipient, uh, as the author of his autobiography and poet laureate uh, of Colorado back in 1974. Rocky Mountain High became the Colorado State Song in 07. So, can't argue with the Poet Laureate thing, because he wrote some incredible songs. So, and that was way back in 74. Uh, the state song came along in 07, Rocky Mountain High, which actually was, I think, issued in 72. But the author of his autobiography, that kind of stuck with me. Now, it stuck with me because John didn't write that book. Arthur Tobier wrote the book. Now... I'm sure John spoke the book, meaning he talked about his life, but John Denver did not sit down and write out a 320-some-odd-page autobiography called Take Me Home. Arthur Tobier did that. And I only know that because his name's on the front of the book. And I also know that John's uh, manager back in the day, Hal Thaw, set that up because Arthur worked on Hal's book. That's how that went. So I got two hands here, kids. On one hand, uh, I don't think that's correct. You know, if you're going to put John in there, you have to be, and I hope you're going to mention Arthur Tobier, who's who's written about a dozen books, some for other people, some on his own. So he's not included in here. His name's on the book. So to say that John is the author of his autobiography, I guess is correct on some level, but he didn't write it. However, on the other hand, it takes me to this book that I've been working on for just about a year now with Randy Hunley called Iron Man, which should be out in about a month and a half. We have a book launch on August 20th. It better be ready. So my name's on the front of the book. Randy didn't type a single letter. I did all that. 
But Randy, of course, sat down and told me about his life. And then I translated all these mountains of audio into what I hope is a cohesive and comprehensive uh, reflection on his life. No different than Arthur did for John. Not that Randy Hundley's book is going into any Hall of Fame anytime soon, nor am I being elected to a Hall of Fame. But therein lies the difference. I can understand the concept of this, but I just had to go on record, no pun intended, that uh, vinyl long play record, that John Denver did not, in fact, this reminds me like, oh God, we God in fact did not appear in the courtroom today, but we saw him. Well, we did, but we didn't. So yeah, his name's, it's John Denver's book. His name's on the cover, but it was written by Arthur Tobier. I hope they, the Colorado Authors Hall of Fame recognizes that and uh, at least has some sort of uh, recognition for the guy who actually put the time in. Uh, the audiobook John read, no question, but you can tell, at least in my opinion, because of knowing the guy and then knowing the process of how audiobook works, was actually on cassette tape. It should be upgraded to digital, and if it isn't, we should figure that out. But, um, you know, I could tell that the words that were used in the book were not words that John would normally say. And so I think some places you could hear him kind of like, oh, I didn't, wouldn't have written that. But uh, all, all, it's not the end of the world stuff. Certainly, uh, you know, the book did well. And I do know for a fact that John hated the book tour because there was no guitar in his hand and sitting at a table uh, for a guy like him to constantly sign books and talk with people is not what he's used to. He called it the flesh-eating book tour. For a guy like me, it's the opposite. You're not going to see me on the stage with a guitar in my hand anytime soon. So for me to sit and sign books for two hours is, is a, you know, a gift. So when we do the book launch with Randy in August, um, you know, I'll be signing where my name's at. He'll be signing where his name's at. We both collaborated on it, but that's, that's the way that that worked out. Um, the other piece of the show today is about work. Inevitably, it happens around this time of the year, every summer, right in the middle of summer, when uh, it's really hot. So we just had a, a heat wave here for a few days in the mid-90s, lower 90s, something like that. And of course, that's the day that I decide I'm going to go out and work in the yard. I work in the yard anyway, but nothing in the yard is pressing to the fact that I actually have to go out and do it when it's 94 degrees. But I like being outside when it's hot. I like moving around and I like getting that stuff done in, you know, it's just part of summer. You just go out and you work in the yard. I was brought up that way. It was always working in the yard. What are we going to do on Saturday, dad? We're going to work in the yard, boy. And I enjoyed it. And when I'm out there, I think of my folks. I think of my mom, especially, who was uh, had a great green thumb. And uh, outside of the vegetables, which she, we never did, she was all about the flowers. You know, she grew up for a part of her life on a farm. And I think she saw the yard a little bit like that. Uh, whenever we went to uh, the uh, the greenhouse, I, I would inevitably end up with some sort of small plant for my room. I actually have three cacti sitting here that was one of the first things she bought me was a cactus. And so I have three of them sitting here. Uh, right near my desk. It reminds me of her every day I walk in here. So it's all about working in the yard. So this past week, uh, it was hot, as I mentioned, and I went out and I was going to trim the grass and then cut the grass. You got to trim it first, do all the edge, all the way around so that falls down, then cut it all up. And I don't bag it here. It all gets mulched in the electronic mulching mower. It's a black and decker with a big battery in it. And I'll tell you what, after years of pushing a mower with uh, gas and exhaust, I bought this thing a couple years ago and uh, plug in a battery, plug it in the thing, off I go, it's quiet, done, all good. Enjoying that. And then we have these huge hedges next to the alley here. And 
some of them are pushing 15 feet high. And so I got to get the ladder out and the extension cord and all that stuff goes. Anyway, all that goes with that, I'm out there for a couple hours. And when I'm cutting the grass, my mind goes to grass drills. And grass drills are all about football. And so when we played in summertime, in high school especially, is what sticks in my mind, uh, was double sessions we would do. And I don't remember if they're more than two weeks long. I can't imagine we did them for two weeks, but at least a week of practicing in the morning when it was cool and then taking a break in the, you know, an hour and a half break, hour break, whatever it was, and then coming back and doing another double session in the afternoon. So you had a morning and an afternoon. So you had two sessions together, hence the term double sessions. When it was hot and you're running and you have all this football equipment on, for me at least, there was a fusion that took place. I, I, I so equate that feeling with literally cutting the grass now as I turn 65 in December. I'm not cutting the grass. I'm doing grass drills back at Shures High School. I'm sweating. I can smell the grass. It's sunny and hot out. And I'm moving something. I'm pushing something. And back in the day, it wasn't a lawnmower so much as it was a blocking sled or the guy in front of me or doing tackling drills or something we did called monkey rolls. It's look it up. There's got to be a picture somewhere. You get three guys laying on the ground and one goes up and the other one comes down and the other one comes up and comes down. And the objective is not to run each other over and get knocked the shit out of each other. That came later. So that's so connected to that to me that it's like I couldn't shake it. And then when I started cutting the hedges down, when you're pulling ladders out and extension cords and, you know, cutting stuff, then I started thinking about working construction, uh, specifically pouring concrete for three years uh, in my uh, junior, senior, and then my first year in college in, in the summer. And then after I came out of the service, I went back and worked for the same guy, Merritt Concrete, great guy, Jerry, um, for another year, you know, in the, in the summertime. And back then the pay was great. I don't remember exactly what it was, but for me it was great. We got pay, paid every Friday. And some of the lessons from working like that, especially on a crew where you have to, you know, be, start and then finish a job before you get paid is, is a lifelong lesson to me. And you never got paid until the customer was happy. And the customer wasn't happy until the cleanup work was done exactly how they wanted it. So even in my own yard, in my own place, um, I am so cognizant of, it's like in my mind ingrained, it's got to be finished right. I'm now the customer. I could cut corners, but I can't. It's like everything's got to be the way it is. Otherwise, I don't get the payoff. And that along with the fact that working with a crew of guys in, in very much a freelance way was, I think, set me up to do the work that I do is I, now. I don't pour concrete anymore. But the discipline of getting up at a certain time, being at work at a certain time, doing this stuff, especially outside all day and it was hot, uh, something got burned into me. It just, it just stays with me. So in some respects, I don't see much difference of uh, breaking out, uh, let's say, a driveway and then running 80-gallon barrels of concrete down a, a driveway and pouring it you know, for four hours to get the thing done and helping to finish it and clean up. I don't see that any different than writing a book. You gotta have, I have to have the discipline to sit down and do this. Once I start, I got to finish it, right? I have to get to the point where the, the driveway's finished, the book is finished. And all the little ups and downs in between somehow parallel that work environment that I was in. So you're always looking for something or something's missing or you got to redo something, whatever. And all those early lessons, working that hard outside especially, uh, I think is what propels me when it's hot to be out and do these things. I, I miss 
to some degree, not a great degree, just to some degree, uh, that kind of effort. You know, I've always got to find something physical to do. These days, it's more brain work and my fingers. But outside, when I'm when I'm digging a hole or when I'm cutting the grass or I'm doing the, you know anything with the the trimmer, even though there's a light work, I think about running a sixty or eighty pound jackhammer for hours to get paid. And I think for me that has been such a part of my path that the lines have become blurred. I just don't see much of a difference between that and this. One offsets the other. One created the other. So when I run into guys that I used to work construction with and I tell them that I work on books and I've done radio and stuff, like, really? Like, I, we only thought you could break concrete. <laughs> no, do more than that. Ready to wind this one up, this uh, fodder show. Um, I can't help but think of one of the jobs that I had around this time of the year that just, again, stuck in my mind. This is right when FM radio came out. I mean, it had been out, but we had it finally on our, our radio. For years, my folks listened to WGN in Chicago uh, on an avocado green AM radio that was perched on top of an avocado green fridge next to an avocado green stove uh, near the avocado green dishwasher, all from Sears, I'm sure. But at one point, my folks got a big stereo, and of course, that had FM on it, had a, had a turntable on the top, and my world expanded exponentially to sit down and uh, to listen to all these albums and, and to go up and down an FM radio dial was like a whole new deal. And so uh, it was been about this time of the year, back in 1975, I believe, my folks were going up to visit cousins in Wisconsin. I stayed back because I had football practice. And one of my jobs, one of my worksheet pieces was to paint the front porch. And believe it or not, my mom wanted it green. Go figure. But not avocado green. It's more of a, uh, like a, a, not even a forest green. Somewhere in between forest green and green, whatever that would have been. And the pillars, she wanted canary yellow. So we'd have this green porch base, uh, but the pillars in the underneath would be canary yellow, which I thought was a kind of an odd comment. It's like snot to me. But anyway, that, I digress. I'm leaving that comment in, by the way. Um, and so they were leaving on a, a third on a Friday morning, and I had practice that day, and then they weren't coming back till Sunday night. So I got up, I went to practice, had their double sessions in that heat, and at that point. Um, I was probably a junior in high school. And then I came back and Saturday morning, my mom had bought a couple of submarine sandwiches for me. Now there's a place that used to exist in Chicago. And if you're a Chicago and you'll probably know this called Heroes Subs. It was on the corner of Western Avenue and Addison. Still there, but closed. Much to our uh, dismay here in the big city. Best subs I've ever had in my life. I don't know what they put in those things, but they were fantastic. So she had purchased a couple big subs for me. They were in a cooler on ice with a couple of Cokes in there and a couple other things. And it was all good. And so my mom and dad were bugging out. They were gone for the day, not back till Sunday night. And my job was to get the thing painted by the time they come back. Dad had the paint laid out, everything bought at Sears, of course. And I started probably about eight o'clock in the morning on a hot summer day in 1975. And I started scraping paint and scrape and paint. And I was using a paint scraper. Then I was using a wire brush and then I'm sweeping it down. And of course, at that point, I'm, you know, bulletproof. I'm 17 years old and I, you could go all day. You know, it's like Superman at the time. That's what happens when you're young, right? You get that, you got that extra gear. And I don't, I think only until I've become older. And of course I can't do the same things I used to do in the gym and stuff like that. I miss that gear. 
because it was like the superpower. That's the superpower of youth, that extra gear where I'm just going to work all freaking day. So once I got the whole thing scraped down, had my first sub sandwich, I decided obviously let, let it take a break. I rinsed everything off, let it dry. And I took out a bunch of vinyl albums and I started stacking them like my dad would do. He put, you know, six, eight albums on the arm and he'd drop them down there and things like that. And on the top of it, after I went through Frank Sinatra and Bobby Darren and Blood, Sweat and Tears and a bunch of other ones, of course, An Evening with John Denver had just come out. And I make no bones about the fact that, uh, you know, I, his music, I think, reached something inside of me that, and it's never let go. I can't quite explain it, don't want to, uh, to eventually have a friendship with the guy and have him support me in the work and everything I did at Windstar and all that. Uh, is is way beyond my pay grade in explaining, but I'm just glad that it did happen. And uh, so anyway, I've dropped this on, and I must have played this album until it wore through. And I remember the neighbors; <laughs> some of them really enjoyed it, and some were like, "Turn that shit off." But anyway, I'm I'm reminded of that this morning. And when I saw that story about John, I thought about work and that porch and that whole thing. And um, I thought I would just send you off with this today as a reminder that there's so much value in the work that we do. There is the mighty work we do in the world when you're when you're doing something larger than yourself, which I think sometimes to me is this podcast. Again, get the chance to reach the world sitting in my studio here just outside of Chicago. Unheard of when I started this business in 1997. Uh, but here it is and all the rest that goes with it. I, I'm not here to live a small life. And I think the, the, the more that you look for the opportunities to do something that's bigger than yourself or bigger than your ego, amazing things come out of it. I mean, when I dropped the, the needle on that John Denver album in 1975, there was no way to know on my conscious level that just less than 20 years later, I'd be standing by his invite on the stage at a place called uh, Windstar in Aspen, Colorado, my first speaking engagement, really, in front of a, a large audience. And he saw something in me I didn't see in myself. I don't know where this stuff begins. Maybe it's part of that. Maybe it isn't. I don't know. It's like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. But I do know something that music is a time machine. Whenever I hear this song, it takes me back to scraping the porch and painting the porch and eating Hero Sub sandwiches and have a ice cold Coca-Cola and listen to this song. And as you're going to hear at the end of this clip, uh, John uh, Denver gives full credit to the guy that wrote the song, John Summers. John didn't write it. The other John did. John Denver sung it, made it a hit. John Summers probably could retire on that one song. Anyway, you know, that's kind of like the book example, isn't it? You know, John didn't write the book. The other guy did. It's like a songwriter. He sung it. So I guess I can give him a pass. But I still am not real convinced on the Hall of Fame thing. Anyway, until next time, be well, safe travels, keep the faith. Clap your hands. Well, life on the farm is kind of laid back. Ain't much an old country boy like me can't hack. It's early to rise, early in a sack. I thank God I'm a country boy. Well, a simple kind of life never did me no harm Raising me a family and working on the farm the days are all filled with an easy country charm Thank God I'm a country boy Well, I got me a fine wife, I got me old fiddle When the sun's coming up, I got cakes on the griddle Life ain't nothing but a funny, funny riddle Thank God I'm a country boy When the work's all done and the sun's set low Pull out the fiddle and the rosin up the bow Kids are asleep, so I keep a cattle up And thank God I'm a country boy Sally Gooden all day if I could But the Lord and my wife wouldn't take it very good So I fiddle when I can, work when I should And thank God I'm a country boy Well, I got me a fine wife, I got me 
old fiddle When the sun's coming up I got cakes on the riddle Life ain't nothing but a funny, funny riddle Thank God I'm a country boy Them money hungry fool. Rather have my fiddle and my falling tools. Thank God I'm a country boy. Yeah, city folk driving in a black limousine. A lot of sad people thinking that's somebody keen. Son, let me tell you now exactly what I mean. I thank God I'm a country boy. Well, I got me a fine wife. I got me old fiddle. When the sun's coming up, I got cakes on a riddle. Life ain't nothing but a funny, funny riddle. Thank God I'm a country boy. Yeah. But my dad is till the day he died And he took me by the hand, held me close to his side Said to live a good life, play my fiddle and cry And thank God you're a country boy Well, my daddy taught me young how to hunt and how to whittle Taught me how to work and play a tune on a fiddle Taught me how to love and how to give just a little And thank God I'm a country boy Well, I got me a fine wife, I got me old fiddle When the sun's coming up, I got cakes on the riddle Life ain't nothing but a funny, funny riddle